episode 440 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis. I'm here with Andrew Swafford. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we talk about Muppets 2011 <laughs> and Muppets Most Wanted <laughs> with Kermit Frog on Cinematary Pidcast. Man, how and I'm, that sounds exactly like Zach Dennis. Ah, uh, no, I'm Zeke Dennis. I, uh, I am a host of Cinematary Pidcast. <laughs> I'm going to do all of part two in a Constantine, the most dangerous frog in the world accent. In, in People who have not seen Muppets Most Wanted and don't know this accent are really missing out in life. Yeah, the, the you know, we'll get into it. The movie movie's fine, but it's very much worth just watching this, this, them play Kermit as a Eastern Bloc criminal but the Eastern Bloc criminal is like doing a Russian accent in a Kermit accent. And at one point is He's failing to do a Kermit yeah, impression. It's it's great. Yeah. It's really it's it's like prime like Muppet <laughs> stupidity. It's great. Um but first let's go ahead and jump into uh into some movies that we saw this week. And I feel like uh I feel like so Andrew, you got a bunch of new releases. Um I feel like you got the movie the movie the, the 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 movie of being talked about the most right now the, the movie of the moment movie uh, of the moment the that's what i was going at is uh you know everybody's talking about it um which is true or not depending on how online you are i guess um and that movie is skinnamarink by a first uh first time filmmaker or this is his first feature film uh director kyle edward ball um and this is an odd movie. I'm going to attempt to describe it for you here. Um, my ex- first exposure to it was watching the trailer um, in a theater when I was, I was going to see another movie. And uh, let me describe the trailer first. So the trailer is um, mostly just pictures of corners and doorknobs and ceilings, just ecstatic shots of those things, kind of drenched in this dark blue light uh, with a kind of a grainy filter over the top of it. Um, and you keep hearing this voice that seems like it's introducing you to the concept of the movie. It keeps saying, in this house. And it says it like, in this house, in this house, you know, like that. But then it, sa- it says that... that that would be a fun fan edit of this i think um (laughs) but yeah so that's the trailer that's how they're selling it like it's just that you know um and i think a lot of people are seeing that trailer and thinking like oh man what could be in that house because they keep they just keep saying in this house in this house um and there's there's no fault there's no predicate to that sentence right um and so people are are really hype about this movie it's it's gone viral on tiktok um it leaked a little while ago which drummed up a lot of buzz about it um and i think a lot of mainstream audiences who are going to see this 
um, are being disappointed because the movie, it's not like the trailer is hiding something from you that the movie then reveals. No, that's just the movie. The movie is, <laughs> is just shots of corners and doorways and, and ceilings and stuff. Um, there is uh, kind of a, a story being told here. Um, it's a story of two uh, siblings one of them is four and one of them is seven, I think. So very, very, very young kids um, in a house where um, the, the way that the director describes it and the way that the synopsis describes it is that they have woken up in their house and the doors and windows um, have disappeared. So they can no longer go outside. They are trapped um, in, the ho- in this house. Now, you would be forgiven for watching the movie and not getting that story because again you're looking at corners and stuff but i think that there definitely is a a plot uh, to this movie um and it, it is somewhat open to interpretation of course um there's there's a scene early on where we hear the children's father on the phone saying that one of the children has fallen down the stairs and you can either interpret that as the child has hit their head and they have like suffered some sort of brain injury and and the rest of the movie is kind of their you know uh, mental uh, spiritual wandering uh, as a result of that or I've also heard it interpreted as um, the child's father is abusive and this is like a story that he's telling somebody else to cover up his own abuse of his children. And what you're seeing in the movie is the way it feels to be stuck in a house with an abusive caregiver. Um, and so these children have woken up in, in the middle of the night. Um, doors and windows apparently have disappeared. They are scared alone can't find their parents and they mostly post up in the living room and watch tv and play with legos like mostly you are kind of uh you're from an arm's reach away kind of like witnessing these kids play with legos and watch tv but you never really see the kids you never really see their faces um, you, you see basically no characters' faces in this movie. Every, everything that happens plot-wise is sort of implied uh, by suggestion. And, like, all the dialogue you hear is coming from somebody who's just out of frame, um, uh, just off screen. And uh, so it's kind of an interesting experience to, to piece together and feel out what's happening in this movie and, and be sort of subsumed by the the really intense atmosphere of the movie uh, because it is less a story of uh, one of my friends described it as like it is less a story about a haunted house and more like what it would actually feel like to be in that house um you're not really going through any sort of standard genre plot beats you're just sort of like stuck in this place in the same way that these characters are stuck in this place and it's real disconcerting and and can be um can be you know very unsettling um it it is visceral i would say like our uh, friend of the pod um uh, mike thorne um has uh, talks about this phrase um affect horror uh, like he doesn't he he prefers horror that like actually um, 
kind of rattles him uh, fear-wise, right? And I think this is a movie that is going for that. It's 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 less interested in traditional storytelling or thematics or anything like that, and more interested in just like giving you this sensation that these characters are having. Um, and yeah, go ahead, Zach. I was just gonna ask, like, just from from the 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 stills I've seen of it, and just kind of the marketing and everything, it seems like this is uh, at least a film, like as you're describing, experience wise, that kind of has a kinship to Blair Witch and Paranormal Activity. Yeah, um, so it's kind of a in in a way the kind of paranormal activity movie that I've always wanted to see. When I watched Paranormal Activity, you know, I talked about this on the, on the podcast episode we did about it. Um, I was so taken with that shot of the bedroom, like the, the blue tinted surveillance shot that they set up where you're just watching these characters sleep and watching like the door slowly close and things like that. And um, I felt like, man, what I want is a paranormal activity movie that's directed by like Kiyoshi Kurosawa or a Pitchpong or a Sethical or Chantel Ackerman or somebody, right? And this is kind of that movie um, where it's kind of a Blair Witch if um, in Blair Witch you were mostly just looking at like the leaves <laughs> as the characters were crunching through them and you weren't really hearing a lot of their, their inane conversations. Um there are that sounds honestly a lot better than listening to them talk in Blair Witch so you know that is miserable I truly um now I've I've mostly described this as like a very you know affecting you know effective horror movie um but your mileage will definitely vary on this movie my mileage varied throughout the runtime I've kind of gone back and forth on it since watching it multiple times um, because you are the the headspace that that at least I was in while watching the movie kind of fluctuated back and forth between like this is unsettling, this is scary, I feel unsafe. To I'm bored. When will something happen? Right? Or like I've seen this shot before. Um, or in in some cases like I'm annoyed because they do. Uh, Kylo Ball does include a couple of jump scares. And they're pretty, like, cheap, manipulative jump scares, I gotta say. Like, um, it is interesting to me that this movie has blown up with, uh, like, the uh, TikTok Gen Z, like, meme culture, or, like, the creepypasta culture, um, because it does remind me of certain kind of low-effort memes that I've seen. Um, Are you familiar with, like, the ear rape memes, where they just, like, take... A video with an audio file and then like at the very end they crank up the audio so loud that it hurts your ears like that's what the jump scares are like in Skinamarink um, and like yeah I jumped like I audibly like gasped uh, when these things happened but it wasn't necessarily because the film was um, like moving me in, in any sort of way it was more like I got stuck with a cattle prod um, and like, of course I was going to jump when that happened. Right. Um, so having that experience with it, kind of going back and forth, like, is this cool and experimental and scary, or is this kind of boring and cheap and, and low effort and manipulative? Um, I, I was trying to investigate that feeling for myself. So I went and listened to slash watched a bunch of interviews with the director, uh, Kyle Edward Ball. Um, he also has a YouTube channel. Um, he was making short films for several years before uh, making this. 
And um, I, I, I unfortunately have to concur with a handful of folks on Letterboxd who have been uh, writing about this. Kyle Edward Ball kind of gives off dumb guy energy. Like, I, I don't know the guy personally. I don't want to say he's unintelligent or he's a hack or anything like that. But, like, this is a movie where your experience with it is totally subject to how charitable you want to be to the movie. Like, it's kind of an emperor has no clothes situation. Do you or do you not? Are you or are you not, like, kind of willing to give yourself over to the movie and say, like, oh, yeah, this is actually really brilliant as opposed to, like, this is some inane bullshit. Um, and when I listen to him talk, I'm kind of, I kind of lean towards this is some inane bullshit. Um, and I, I feel this more when I look through his YouTube channel. Um, he had this uh, a ch- channel called Bite Size Nightmares, where he, I think he started by filming um, a childhood nightmare that he had. Like try, he describes it in the video, and he's kind of making uh, a visualizations of his description as you're hearing the story. And it's like a four minute video, um, and it's mostly just a camera sort of floating through a darkened, empty house. And then all of a sudden, there's a scary figure at the end, you know? And there's like a hundred videos like that on his YouTube channel. Um, and and they all seem kind of the same. I haven't watched through all of them, but I've, I've clicked through. Um, he also has a bunch of videos that are like three hours long of like, their descriptions are like, it you're in a house, but you're a, a dead child or something like that. You know, like it, the, you know those, um, those videos of like, red bone but you're in a bathroom at a party you know like just taking taking an audio thing that people are familiar with and putting a filter over it and saying it's art like that that is kind of the vibe i get from some of kyle edward ball's stuff but like i i also gotta hand it to him that it can be really effective um so i am still not kind of whiffly waffly not really sure where i'm going to land on this um but one thing that makes me admire skinnamarink more in some ways is i also watched his short film heck Uh, it was the longest thing he had done um up until skinnamarink other than like the you know three hour low effort um you know youtube loops um and heck is has been described as a proof of concept film uh for skinnamarink and um, it is pretty identical, uh, but instead of being an hour and 40 minutes, which Skinnamarink is, and uh, that's, that's almost definitely way too long of a runtime for that movie, um, Heck is only 30 minutes. And so I, when I left Skinnamarink and thought, like, man, that was cool but too long, um, I was wondering, you know, what, what would this guy's work look like in a shorter form? And Heck is... Uh, really bad. I, I j- very much disliked it. Uh, w- worse than Skin and Rink by a wide margin. And uh, I think it just goes to show how much like upping your production value um, uh, can really do uh, for a movie. Because he's doing the same, he's telling basically the same story uh, for the most part. Um, but the atmosphere is just so much stronger in, cinema, in Skin and Rink than it is in Heck. Um, there, it, it that short is slightly different in that you're only you're only following the one kid as opposed to two. Um, the kid is looking for their mom as opposed to, um, you know, maybe afraid of their dad. 
Um, there's also a really, I think, bullshitty manipulative reveal in the last five minutes of Heck where the the kid says, like, Mommy, I'm sorry I got cancer. Um which just seems like a very easy way to give pathos to a film that wasn't actually generating pathos up until that moment. Um, that almost sounds like a joke. Like, it mommy, like a joke. I'm sorry I got cancer. And the last line of the movie is, Mommy, I think we're in hell. And like, I think the title of the movie is a joke. Like, he's a kid. He wouldn't say hell. He would say heck. This is a, this is a movie about being in heck. Um, it's just a little like cutesy and, um, it feels kind of lazy and cheap to me. Um, but again, Skinnamarink can be, it can really get under your skin. And I, in a, in a horror landscape where like, A, we're getting a lot of cookie cutter stuff. Um, and B, a lot of it is so concerned with thematics about, you know, trauma and family and stuff, uh, that it's not actually that concerned with scaring the audience. It's, you know, the, the current strain of horror is more interested in kind of asking the audience to, um, trace an allegory, um, than it is to like be viscerally affected by the craft of the movie. Skinner Rink does that in spades. Um, but again, it's not going to do that for everybody, and it may not do that for you like consistently through the course of the movie. Um, but it is definitely worth seeing. It's crazy that it exists. It's crazy that it got distributed in multiplexes. <laughs> um, like this is maybe the most avant-garde feature to ever play in as many multiplexes as it has. Um so I think that's cool that that's that like people are just kind of being exposed to stuff. Kyle Leonard Ball has said that um, one of his big inspirations was uh, Wavelength by Michael Snow. And, uh, you know, no people who are going to multiplexes are not also going to watch uh, uh, Wavelength by Michael Snow. Uh, so like, that's cool. I'm, I'm very glad that uh, it's it's kind of like you know, uh, I don't know, uh, op- breaking open the gates of like what can be done in like wide release horror. Um, and, and I'm really curious to see what Kyle Oderball does next. Uh, he said in, in a couple of interviews that he has signed a deal, um, with a pretty major distributor. I don't know if that means like a 24 neon or if that means like Paramount or Warner brothers or something. I don't know, but he said that he is going to make a horror movie, another horror movie, and it's going to be out 2023 or 2024. So that will kind of be the litmus test for me as to like, does this guy actually have the juice or not? Like, can he make a movie that is not skin for another two hours? Uh, because based on what his YouTube channel is, it seems like that's kind of all he's got in the tank. Um, but but we'll see. Like, I could be uh, proven wrong, and this guy could be, like, one of the, the major new voices in horror moving forward. Who knows? Um, but, yeah, that, that's Skinnamarink. Will, will, will dummy Kyle Edward Ball not just be a dumb guy? Who knows? Can Maybe I'm say, totally misreading him and, and being uncharitable and mean. And I, I hope that's the case. I mean, honestly, if the guy name checks wavelengths, 
by Michael Snow. Yeah. Like he at least is somewhat interesting. He's seen movies. He's he's <laughs> cine literate. Yeah. Yeah. And like I'll, like I'll give him that. He seems much more like literate in in movies than like some of these these folks getting Oscar noms. So, you know, it's but he also talks him. about horror movies in a way, like horror specifically, in a way that almost sounds like somebody who's new to getting into the genre. And I'm sure that's not him, but like, you know, there's an interview where he talks about The Shining not being scary. It's more creepy and creepy movies are better than scary movies. And like, it just feels like there's this weird air of of like condescension that people often have towards the horror genre. That like, it's... Like I, I'm I have to prove that I'm like better than the horror genre in some way, um, as opposed to being like a true admirer or fan of it. Um I don't know. I don't know what this guy's deal is. We'll we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> Alright. Well uh the jury's out on uh K E B, as they say. <laughs> um but Skinamarink, which sounds like a nursery rhyme, is uh mm-hmm in theaters now so um speaking of stuff that's in or was speaking of of movies that are in theaters now if you have some place that has art house movies Mm -hmm. um say no mare it seems to be like one of those oh you didn't see this last year you missed out well, I think the only people who saw Saint Omer last year were people who uh, went to a couple select festivals. Um, but it, it is now playing in some theaters. Um, this movie is by um, another filmmaker who I've I've not seen anything else by. Um, Alice Diop, I think is how you say her name. Uh, she's French. Yeah. Um, her uh, her is it her sister? Maddie Diop did uh, Atlantiques oh, a couple years ago. I didn't ago. know that she was related to uh, Sister, the Atlantiques. Some some sort maybe. of relation there. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I actually have never seen that. Did you watch that movie? Yeah, it's a cool movie. I should watch it, um, especially if there's yeah. stylistic similarities with Saint Omer. Um, it's on. Uh, it's on Netflix. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's on. Uh, it's on netflix nice it was a netflix release well anyways um i saw saint omer um and it is a really interesting movie um it is about um a high profile court case happening um in this town called saint omer in france um and the court case is about a woman uh, a, a young mother um who murdered her baby um baby was like a year year and a half old mother took the baby to the beach uh, like in the middle of the night and left the baby in the waves and let the baby be carried out into the ocean and die and the baby eventually washes up on the shore somebody finds the baby some this lady gets tracked down um, and she's on trial and she admits to doing it like first thing out of the gate whenever she gets up on the witness stand like did you or did you not kill your baby she's like yeah i killed my baby but they ask her how she pleads and she says she pleads innocent um and and she claims that like she is not the one who is morally responsible for killing her baby and they ask her like why she did it and she says well that's what i hope to find out in the course of this uh trial and uh 
the process of, of finding that out, both for her and for us, is a very fascinating one with lots of twists and turns. Um, now, I should also mention that um, this character, this uh, mother, um, is not our point of view character in the movie. Our point of view character um, is another woman. Um, they're, they're both from um, uh, Senegal, I think. Um, and but they're both living in France, and our prote- our point of view character is I think a film studies teacher. Um, we get a uh, a scene of her teaching uh, the movie Hiroshima Mon Amour, um, at, to to introduce us to her character, um, and and like the 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 lyrical poetry of the screenplay in Hiroshima Mon Amour, um, and we we hear her deliver this like really. A beautiful, um, thoughtful, profound lecture, and then you barely hear her talk for the rest of the movie, um, because she travels to this uh, town where the the trial is going on, and you're mostly just watching her watch the trial. So it's an interesting. There's an interesting perspective in the movie where our eyes are on this event that's happening, but we're having to filter that event through the eyes of another character who we know very little about and we don't find out that much about. Um, but you can kind of tell that she's being moved by certain things that, that come up in the testimony um, and that you can, you can tell that she relates to this woman on some level. Um, they have a lot of uh, like eerie things in common with one another just in their personal lives. Um, the, the, the point of view character is currently pregnant and seems to be having some sort of second thoughts about her pregnancy or her marriage or something like that. Um, and, and so you're kind of like not just listening to this really interesting crime story unfolding in front of you, but also sort of solving a mystery yourself of like, well, what is this crime story saying to this woman? And like, what am I learning about something even broader by connecting those dots? Um, It is uh, a very formally interesting movie. Um, It sticks to just a handful of camera angles, when we are watching the mother on the stand, it is always just like one unbroken shot and it always comes back to the same shot. Like you're always seeing her from the same perspective. And I think it's the perspective of the the point of view character sitting in the stands. Um, so it's not a flashy movie in terms of you know, camera work that's like moving all over the place or doing any sort of fancy edits or something. But it's uh, a movie that like makes you notice the formal choices that are being made because they're so insistent on like, this is the angle that we are viewing this scene from. Um, And like, it is, it is almost like um, we are being asked to um, focus less on the the cinema and more on like the information like you are just like listening looking at somebody's face and in in our case reading subtitles and like trying to piece together all this evidence yourself um as if you were a juror in in a courtroom um which is a a really interesting way to tell uh, a story like this i think um you know a lot of uh courtroom dramas are are pretty um I don't know, uh, um, 
uh, glamorized, I guess. There's a lot of like big Hollywood speechifying and stuff in them. Um, you can't handle the truth. That kind of thing, right? This movie is not that. It's like very calm, very direct, uh, kind of dry in a way. But the subject matter is so not that that like you can't help but sort of be engrossed and sucked in and, and interested. At least I that was my experience with it. Um, I should also say that uh, the performance uh, of this mother uh, played by, oh man, I don't know if I can say this woman's name correctly, Jislagi Malanda. Um, incredible performance. Um, she has been in a grand total of two movies. Um, it looks like um, I have not seen her other movie. And like the choices that this woman makes um, in terms of like just playing this character so like deadpan confidently like she gets up on the stand and like looks directly at the judge and like never breaks eye contact with the judge and just like admits to killing her baby and says like yeah i want to figure out why i did that like this courtroom is therapy for me but like the she has this extreme uh stoicism um to her that um kind of in in sort of that like Bressonian way sort of implies greater depths than we're not seeing um and in in the small moments where she does uh kind of break um or or reveal those depths um it, it can be really moving um so fantastic fantastic performance um there's also an interesting thing going on chronologically with the movie where um Every now and then, uh, we are getting um, snapshots of our POV character's childhood, but the movie doesn't really announce, like, it's flashback time. You know, there's there's no musical cue or fade or anything like that. It's just all of a sudden we're watching something else, and we're not really given the context for that something else, and our job is to kind of figure out how this fits into the broader tapestry of this movie. Um, so it is a movie that is like asking the audience to do a, a bit of intellectual work, but I never found that intellectual work to be, um, like arduous at all. I was just like too interested and swept up in it, um, to, um, mind, I guess. Um, I will also say as a, as a literature person, um, there are some really interesting literary connections that this movie has. I don't know if they're intentional literary connections or not, but of course, um, you know, I, I can't help but think of Toni Morrison's Beloved, which is another uh, a story about a black woman murdering her children. Um, and also um, uh, Richard Wright's Native Son, um, which is a, a really interesting court drama um, that is like sort of the masculine equivalent of of this movie's like you know weird feminine energy that it's got going on, um, where that book is about a man who has uh, raped and beheaded a white woman, um, and like his lawyer essentially argues that he can't be held responsible because of like. Uh, uh, the the material conditions of society, <laughs> um, and and like it's that novel is like a lengthy exploration of the possibility of that idea, um, and this movie seems to be trying to uh, to delve into similar thematic territory. Um, 
and it's real good. People should see it. Um, Saint Omer, check it out. Yeah. No, it's it's definitely one uh, when it becomes available to me. I've been wanting to check it out because I've seen good stuff about it. Well, cool. Well, all right, we're gonna take a quick break and then uh, we're gonna take one one final trip down Muppet Lane in part two after this. Am I a man or am I a Muppet? of episode 440 of Cinematary. In this part, we talk about the Muppets 2011 and Muppets Most Vaunted. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do that the entire I can't do that the whole time. Uh, directed by Jason Bobbin from a script by Jason Siegel and Nicholas Stoller. The film stars Siegel, Amy Adams, Kermit the Frog, Fozzie Bear, Walter, Great Gonzo, Miss Piggy, and Chris Cooper. Walter, the world's biggest Muppet fan, is on vacation in Los Angeles with his brother Gary and Gary's girlfriend, Mary. They discover that greedy Tex Richmond plans to raise Muppet Studios and drill for oil on the spot. uh, Desperate to save the Muppets' former stomping grounds, three friends join forces with Kermit to reunite Miss Piggy, Fonzie, Fozzie, Fonzie, Fozzie. Isn't that one of the jokes in this one? He's like, Fonzie. (laughs) I don't remember Uh, this bit, yeah, I think he keeps uh, Constantine keeps calling uh, Fozzie Fonzie. Oh, um, you're right. Yes. Uh, to re- reunite Miss Piggy, Fozzie, and the rest of the gang to hold a telethon to raise the ten million dollars they need to save the studio. In 2008, Jason Siegel and Nicholas Stoller pitched a concept for a Muppets film to Walt Disney Studios executive vice president of production Karen Falk, and they were offered a deal to develop their script. In June 2008, Siegel announced that he had turned in the first draft of his script and was hopeful that the film would live up to previous Muppets movies. Later in 2008, Stoller noted that he and Siegel had written a, quote, old-school Muppets movie where the Muppets have to put on a show to save the studio. In the same interview, Stoller also confirmed that they would get as many cameos and guest stars as possible, that Siegel would play a ventriloquist, which I don't think ever... He's just kind of a person. Uh, Originally, he's a very Muppety man. Yeah. Or is he a very manly Muppet? You know, we don't know. You know who can say Uh, Originally, the film was titled The Greatest Muppet Movie of All Time, and an early leak of the script suggested that it would feature celebrity cameos by Vince Vaughn, Jon Favreau, Christian Bale, Ben Stiller, Steve Carell, George Clooney, Jack Black, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Mel Brooks, Matt Damon, Anne Hathaway, Emily Blunt, Rachel Ray, Bob Saget, Lisa Lapinella, Nelly, uh, Jeff Ross, and Charles Grodin, which is just making me sad. Emily Blunt's in there. She is in it. But I'm just like, can you imagine if they brought Charles Grodin back? I would have been so excited. And he just like rekindled his Miss Piggy relationship. We were just talking off mic between parts about how it would be incredible if Charles Grodin was playing the Ricky Gervais part in Muppets Most Wanted. Oh, but he is so unfortunately much, not. 
Yeah, so much better. It would have been great. Um, another former title of the film was the cheapest Muppet movie ever made after an unused <laughs> script written by Jerry Jewell back in 1985. Uh, a cameo was written for the Sesame Street Muppet Elmo, but was rejected by Disney's attorneys and representatives from Sesame Workshop. You know, those legal battles between Sesame Street and the Muppets. Um, the film required extensive blue screen shots and matte backgrounds. In the scene where Walter is running atop a dresser, the puppeteers perform Walter's choreography while wearing blue costumes against a blue screen. The result had the puppeteers completely gone from the final shot. A majority of the Muppet characters were also completely rebuilt for the film. The majority of the songs for the Muppets was were written by Brett McKenzie, who previously worked with Bobbin on a television series based on McKenzie's band Flight of the Concords. Uh, at the Muppets performer's behest, McKenzie rewrote lyrics where the characters directly for, directly referred to themselves as puppets. McKenzie also was uh, informed during recording sessions with the performers that certain Muppets, such as chickens and penguins, do not speak and instead vocalize in onomatopoeic uh, sounds. You know, you gotta know this stuff. You gotta know if you're gonna be making Muppet songs. Um, prior to the film's release, some past uh, Muppet performers were reportedly critical about the film's portrayal of the characters. Retired Muppet performer Frank Oz initially disapproved of the script and thought that the earlier version was disrespectful toward the characters. After the film's release, he modified his earlier statement saying, quote, I thought the film was really sweet and fun, a little too safe, a little retro. I prefer more cutting edge in the Muppets. But to the Muppets, although uh, they never really left, it's always been a kind of subculture. It's always been there in our popular culture a little bit so i'm happy that people are happy um in 2011 variety said effortless effortlessly blending wised up self-reflexive humor with an with old-fashioned let's put on a show pizzazz the muppets is an unexpected treat and in 2011, the New York Times said, How do you reboot an internet entertainment juggernaut that began to fade before most of its younger audience uh, was born? In the case of the Muppets, you make a leap of faith and hope that the charm of these Jim Henson creations, which once flooded children's television and movies, remains irresistible. On that note, let's talk a little bit about 2011's The Muppets. This is probably the one leading in I'm the most familiar with because I remember going to see this when it came out. I did too. Um, yeah. Um, like the songs, you know, got me into Fly the Concords a little bit for a while. So, yeah, I never, I really, I had never seen Fly to the Concords before, uh, before this movie. So, um, but like, I hadn't seen it in a number of years, and like, you know, now coming back with all my Muppet knowledge that I've developed over the past three weeks, three four weeks, <laughs> um, it's 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 a totally different movie, right? Yeah, it's 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 entertaining. Um, I don't think it's as together as um, as together as like some of the you know like Muppet Movie or or Muppet Great Muppet Cave Birth or even Treasure Island or anything like that. Um, the thing that I kind of am annoyed by, and this seems to be a symptom of most of the Disney you know post post Disney merger Muppet things. Is like it definitely like sidelines some like some of the good like weirdo characters, like they even make a joke in Muppets Most Wanted, which we'll talk about in a little bit, about like Rizzo the rat like not appearing <laughs> yeah. at all, and you're like yeah, like Rizzo's fucking great. <laughs> 
true. Um, and like you know, there's just like a bunch of there's a bunch of like the weirdo side characters that don't really get much play. You know, like you add Walter, who's just a wet blanket of a character. Um, along and and really they you know they have like Kermit and Fozzie and Miss Piggy, and even Gonzo is a little like he's not really given much to do. He need he need, he didn't get to even be like a freak. You know, like I just got off of Treasure Very Island. Safe, Gonzo. Yeah, I got off. I got off Treasure Island where he's just like uh like a freak the entire time um but craziest thing he does is try to throw a bowling ball at jack black's head yeah that's you know and then and then he just talks about doing an indoor running of the bulls the entire muppets most wanted so um but no it's still it's still it's still fine a lot of the the you know compared to a lot of the earlier movies the celebrity cameos i feel like are a little bit more forced than this one um, they don't have like that natural, you know, like the you know, thinking about like the Muppet movie, the like the even though you know it's it's very much like you know Mel Brooks will show up or Steve Martin will show up and it's very like it's it's this person, like there's kind of like a naturalness and like they like at least give them like a scene to do something, and in this one literally like like John Krasinski is in this movie never says a word but just like literally like shows up. He's on- just in the credit sequence. Well, he, and he's he's doing like the little like phone bank thing at the end, but it's never oh, like it's right. never like yeah. it goes. That's John Krasinski. It just kind of is like he's there, and you're like, well, like what's you know? It's it's very. I don't feel like it utilizes those as as well as past Muppet movies, but um, but what you know, as somebody as somebody devoted to the Muppets, what what did you make of this one? Well, bouncing off of that point about you know John Krasinski doesn't get a scene. I think that's indicative of just the way that Disney um, plays with nostalgia and recognition um, and and celebrity um, in a way that's different than the way the Muppets used to. Um, I think that for Disney, like pointing at the screen and saying that's John Krasinski is enough for it to be a joke, right? But I think that in Henson's Muppets, Krasinski would have to have a joke to warrant being in the movie, <laughs> right? Um, no, that's true. Like you know, like we we're I was ta- we were talking off mic about how like various characters or various actors from Modern Family are popping up in this movie, and I can't think of a of a good reason that they're popping up other than they you know a it's abc which is owned by disney right. which is doing the Muppets. and selena gomez shows up who's also like a disney child star at the time um it just seems like disney owns all this ip and like has all these connections with all these actors and they're kind of bringing them in for the sake of there being celebrity cameos in the movie and i know the celebrity cameos have been a hallmark of the muppets for a long time but again, they always do something with them. Um, but I would say that like my general take on the movie is um, less concerned with that and less concerned with like how they honor the Muppets as characters and more like how this movie feels like Disney propaganda to me. Like I have to, I gotta say, I find this movie a little despicable <laughs> just because of um, how like shamelessly Disney propaganda it is. Like it's a very meta 
movie, right? It's about the Muppet studio getting bought by a big evil businessman and they have to make a lot of money in order to stay relevant. Otherwise the big businessman is going to put them away (laughs) forever. And like, that's, that's the story of what Disney did with the Muppets. Like they buy the Muppets and they're like, okay, we're going to give you guys one chance to pay it. Like give us profit. Um, and like, in doing so sort of saps a lot of the heart and soul out of it. Um, and, and like, it's weird to me that they cast, you know, the Tex Richmond as the villain when they are Tex Richmond. That, that is the studio, right? Like there's this weird, like false consciousness thing happening where the movie is asking us to, you know, hate the big evil corporation by like um, applauding the product of the big evil corporation. Um, like the movie also kind of positions fandom as like a moral good. Um, like if Walter was not an obsessive stan of the Muppets, he would not be able to save the Muppets. And by extension, if Jason Siegel, the dude, not the character, was not a massive fan of the Muppets, he probably would not have been able to make this project happen, right? So it's sort of presenting fandom as a as like a heroic act almost, and that is is where the Disney propaganda stings the most for me because I feel like since they have so fundamentally like shifted the the balance of power in the market. They have also sort of been conditioning their audience to just kind of want and engage with movies on different levels. And that level primarily is like fandom and obsessive, obsessive like merchandise buying and like these uh, the um, the pleasure of recognition. I understand that Easter egg. I got that joke. I know that character from this other thing. Like, this reminds me of my childhood, but there's no substance to the thing in and of itself. It's all just the recognition. And that's kind of what this movie is, too, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's 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 pretty much what every that's like Disney movies now <laughs> is, is I is, you know, is is literally the joke that they make in the Avengers. Oh, I get that reference. That's literally every joke in every, um, you know, from from the Marvel movies to the Star Wars movies to um, even like um, even like the animated output. You know, like it's funny they make the joke in uh, in Muppets Most Wanted at the beginning, like, you know, we got to make a sequel while the studio waits for Tom Hanks to agree to do Tom, Toy Story Four, and it's like, yeah, like that's they're, they're you know they're that's that's kind of the that's kind of what, what that's the gauge of everything is everything is is all uh, meta everything's all referential and if you saw this one thing and remember it when they make a reference to it in this thing then that's that's the joke that's that's mm-hmm. that's the joke. Though in, I don't know if we want to transition to Muppets Most Wanted yet or not, but when they make the joke about, you know, we're, we're getting a sequel while they wait for Tom Hanks to do Toy Story 4, that sounds like an actual jab at Disney's business practices on the part of the people writing that movie. Um, and less well, I didn't get like a third movie, so. <laughs> Disney playing defense for itself, you know? Yeah. No, um, and it's, but, you know, I saw, I think I saw, um, 
something you wrote, uh, you know, mentioning this, and it, it was reminding me of like my feelings toward the most recent um, Spider-Man movie, which which I talked about on the podcast, but like it's this movie of bringing in these these villains and, and characters and stuff from other Spider-Man movies that were not Disney related, you know, Disney Marvel related. It was mainly like, you know, Sony um, and like co-opting them within the Disney Marvel mold and like literally in the on the part of the villains fixing the villains so that you know even though you have like you know if you watch the like sam raimi spider-man movies alfred molina's an incredible performance you know like willem dafoe's an incredible like those are great performances as as villains um and they like fix them in this disney marvel machine of spider-man and like to me that like that was just such a despicable inexcusable like gross movie because they've already come full circle of like ruining spider-man as a character but now they're like fixing movies like better versions of that character from other you know yeah and like it's and, and like i think i you know i think that's kind of the the what you're getting at with the muppets is it's like taking what you taking like a base familiarity with how the muppets operate and plastering it on to a disney product and when they plaster on a Disney product, they kind of defang it a little bit. Like, I agree with Frank Oz in that quote that you read where he says, like, I prefer the Muppets to be a little more edgy, a little more daring. Um, so, for example, um, like, uh, in there's a scene where Jack Black is wheeled on stage and a bunch of Muppets uh, sing Smells Like Teen Spirit. And they're holding up, uh, like towels that have the lyrics of smells like teen spirit on it and you have beaker hold up the when the line my libido shows up he's holding up like me 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 or whatever um and that moment just kind of made me realize like all of a sudden like oh this is like a weirdly censored muppet movie because so many of the other ones have had Muppets who fuck, you know, like they've been, they've been real edgy and, and real weird. And like these Muppets are so straight laced and vanilla that there's, there's just, it doesn't have the same spirit to it. It feels like we're just, you know, um, selling merch at Disney world. So you couldn't have Charles Grodin in this Muppets because he would want to fuck Miss Piggy and they'd be like, no, this is Disney Muppets. This is, you can't fuck Miss Piggy. <laughs> um yeah and and you know i think i have a little bit of part in the notes it's funny like jason siegel is like kind of this like force behind like hey we should make this um and then like makes this movie it's super successful it does really well and then just kind of like ditches it you know like i was trying to do some research on like why he didn't at least like cameo in the muppets most wanted and he literally was like yeah we talked about it i don't i didn't want to um, you know, at that, at that time he was doing some, he was doing some rom-com, like one of the, you know, one of his kind of art when he was doing the R rated, like Nicholas with Nicholas Stoller, like the rom-coms and stuff. And he was like, yeah, I want to focus on this. I like pretty much, he was like, I worked on the Muppets for like six or seven years. Cause I wanted to see that happen. And then it happened and I was good. And I left, you know, and it's just it, like, t- you know, it was just, such a, it was kind of a weird, it was a weird, you know, for somebody who like. I feel like was the big force behind going, Hey, like we should bring this back. He kind of like did it and was just like, all right, peace. And then 
I wonder how if he was happy with the finished product. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's uh, you know maybe maybe he kind of felt the same way as as we're talking about now, where he kind of was like, yeah, I would have liked to make it more in line with the Muppet movies I remember growing up, or just the show in general. And that's just you know with Disney holding the keys, it's impossible. I wonder if um, he is front and center in this movie for a lot of it, just because Disney needs there to be a human face to market the movie with. Because his character is nothing, like contributes nothing to the movie. His romance with Amy Adams does not need to be in this movie. Um, no, really. Like they almost forget he exists after a certain point. <laughs> they Yeah, they kind of do. At, at some point, they just kind of, you know, once they get all the Muppets together, they're like, all right, whatever, y'all. Um, Bye. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, you know... Because, you, you know, thinking about, like, the human characters, again, like in previous Muppets movies, they're always, like, kind of um, either helping out the Muppet or, like, usually, like, a little bit more, like, antagonistic to degree. You think of, like, Charles Grodin in Great Muppet Caper. You think about, like, Tim Curry in Treasure Island, you know, like, those are always the best Muppet, ca- you know. I mean, honestly, I really like in this movie, Chris Cooper's performance as Tex Richmond is really fun. That's the best part. Yeah. yeah. The what I was actually when the movie started and like through that whole title sequence I noticed myself not laughing. I'm like, when is this movie going to make me laugh? What's going to be the first laugh? And the first laugh was uh Chris Cooper saying the words maniacal laugh. Maniacal laugh. <laughs> maniacal laugh. <laughs> well, and it's like Chris Cooper who like is a very like, you know, generally serious dramatic actor having the goddamn time of his life with this one. I mean, he raps Truly. in this when movie. When he does the rap? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it's great. I love it. Yeah. You think of like Chris Cooper as like the dad in American Beauty, <laughs> and then it's like now he's rapping with some Muppets, <laughs> and then his the two. And I like the, I like the Chris Cooper jokes. I also like the travel by map jokes, um, but for the most part, this movie is real low on humor for me. Um, I think it tries to make the Muppets maybe like more schmaltzy and sentimental than they are like there there's emotional stuff in some of the Muppet movies but there's usually kind of a a wink to it um and and this like very much wants us to take seriously you know the plight of uh Walter um, I don't care about Walter in the Muppet studio yeah (laughs) I did also like that like Gonzo has like the successful company and they're like hey you want to come join the Muppets and he just explodes it (laughs) (laughs) what is the name of his company it's it's something kind of funny Uh, it's something with toilets like gonzo's great plunge or something like that i don't know i like gonzo he's a little freak he's enjoyable (laughs) (laughs) and he gets and he gets you know between him and you lose him and rizzo who are deeply entertaining and in treasure right yeah just have you seen um, Christmas Carol? No, I was gonna watch it though. Um, you should. Might wait. The uh, so Gonzo plays Charles Dickens, who's like narrating the story to you, and he just has Rizzo playing himself, walking around and like making commentary about <laughs> Christmas Carol, and it's fantastic. <laughs> I might have to watch that next Christmas. You know, 
get in the Christmas mood by watching that just because I'm like, I do like Rizzo and Gonzo. Right. Rizzo entertains. Yeah, that's their best role, I think. That was also Muppets from Space. There's a lot of Gonzo content. Yeah. I also like Pepe. He kind of, he entertains me too. Muppets from Space is the best Pepe movie. A lot of good Pepe. He was, he was good. And he was good. He was like the highlight of uh, Wizard of Oz. So that's, you know, oh, man. it's just Pepe. <laughs> um, but you want to move on to uh, Muppets Most Wanted? We've talked about it, you know, but but we can more directly. So Muppets Most Wanted, um, twenty fourteen. It was also directed by James Bobbin, uh, from a script by Bobbin and Nicholas Stoller. The film stars Ricky Gervais, Ty Burrell, Tina Fey, Kermit the Frog, Constantine, Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, Sam Eagle, and Walter. Dominic Bad Guy, uh, or Bad Guy, it's French, uh, the Met, the Muppets new manager, <laughs> uh, convinces the gang to embark on a world tour. Kermit the Frog doubts that it's a good idea, a feeling that's proven right when look lookalike Constantine escapes from prison, takes Kermit's place, and lands Miss Piggy Sweetie in a Siberian prison. While the frog tries to convince his captors of his true identity, Constantine and Dominic are free to carry out their plan to steal London's crown jewels. Um, in March 2012, after the critical and commercial success of The Muppets, Walt Disney Studios negotiated a deal with Bobbin and Stoller to direct and write, respectively, an eighth installment of The Muppets franchise. Along with Brian Henson, Bobbin is the only other person to have directed two Muppet films. Jason Siegel, co-writer and star of the previous film, declined any involvement with the eighth entry, citing that he had accomplished his ambition of bringing the characters to the forefront with the 20, 2011 uh, film. Bobbin said that the film was, quote, a tip of the hat to the old school ca- crime capers of the 1960s, but featuring a frog, a pig, a bear, and a dog. No panthers, even pink ones, along with the usual Muppety mix of mayhem, music, and laughs. Um, in 2014, The Guardian said, while this may lack the emotional clout of the Muppet star coast writer uh, Jason Siegel's original reboot, leading man uh, Ricky Gervais doesn't really do feelings. Uh, it doesn't skimp on good old-fashioned variety entertainment, the bizarre and unforeseeable t- uh, topicality of putting on a show in a Siberian gulag overseen by a trench-coated Tina Fey merely adds to the air of surreal anarchy. Ignore Statler and Waldorf and just enjoy. Um... And in 2014, Variety said, from the first bars of We're Doing a Sequel, an opening number that shamelessly acknowledges the inevitability and inferiority of most movie follow-ups, this eighth feature showcase of Jim Henson's deeply felt creatures, creations, uh, pokes fun at itself in a way that seems self-deflating rather than cheekily inspired. If its predecessor was more sheer fun than a Muppet movie had any right to be, then this is the picture that, like comparable box office success aside, will cement a new generation's notions of what this durable Disney franchise more typically has to offer. Toe-tapping, moderately appealing family entertainment, easy to smile at, and even easier to turn off after 20 minutes. Wow. Harsh. Yeah, Justin changed it. Yeah, Justin Chang did not like uh, Muppets Most Wanted. I really like Muppets Most Wanted. It's like insane to me that this is directed by the same guy and also written by one of the same guys because it feels so different from the Muppets 2011. Um, I don't. Did you have more things in your fact sheet, Zach, or are you good? No, that's all. That's it. Um, no, I, I. You know. I think I wonder, you know, going back to what we were talking about before, I wonder, you know, 
the first that first Muppet movie was just kind of like, hey, they're bankable. And then this one, which didn't do as nearly as well at the box office, was kind of like, yeah, you have more of a little bit more of a free check on this one because yeah. the first one was successful. This seems more like they are trying to do it the way that Henson's crew would have wanted to do it, um, as opposed to the way that Disney needed to like have it perfectly prim and proper for their audience. Um, it feels to me more like a sequel to the great Muppet caper than a sequel to the Muppets 2011. Like it involves a long con (laughs) that is happening. Uh, it involves a human who's has like an unhealthy obsession with a Muppet with Tina Fey and Kermit. Um, it's, it's globe trotting all over the place. Um, it's a genre pastiche. Um, and it's just like so densely packed with jokes in a way that um, Muppets 2011 did not feel like it was to me. Um, And this is among the the Muppet movies that I think is is funniest, that makes me laugh the most. It's also maybe like one of the best batches of songs uh, in any Muppet movie. Uh, Like, we're doing a sequel is great. Um, I'm number one is really fun. Uh, I fucking love Constantine's I Can Give You Anything You Want uh, disco thing. Um, we were talking at the beginning of the episode about like just the sheer hilarity of hearing a actor doing an impression of a Russian character doing an impression of Kermit the Frog badly. But to add another layer to that, it's an actor doing an impression of a Russian criminal doing an impression of Kermit Badly doing an impression of a disco crooner like but you can kind of hear all the layers of that um and it's a good song yeah it's it's, a, it's an incredible voice <laughs> um, performance so i just think this movie is a ton of fun and i i do have like a couple of small critiques with it but they're quibbles uh, compared to like you know the the way in which the 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 problems of the muppets 2011 uh, run real deep for me yeah, this one I think you know talking about like the Muppets 2011 didn't utilize cameos well. This one act like legitimately does utilize cameos well. I mean, it, for sure. At one point, Chris, Christoph Waltz waltzes. You know, like <laughs> that's, that's a fucking that's a fucking Muppet thing to do. Like, yeah. is to have Christoph Waltz waltz. That's the thing that would happen um, on the Muppet Show. Yeah, it was funny. Uh, I, I was I was looking. I guess Christoph Waltz was initially supposed to play the Ty Burrell character. But then, you know, his, he had scheduling conflicts, and so he could only do the cameo. Um, but I do, like, Ricky Gervais less is, is like, going for it. But Ty Burrell and Tina Fey are both oh really God. fun in this movie. Yeah. Because they're just, they're like, Pete, like, t- you know, Tina Fey, you have her who's obsessed with Kermit the Frog and is playing this gulag prison <laughs> person or whatever. But then, like, I really liked Ty Burrell, who plays this Interpol agent who has just, you know, the most hilariously bad French accent, because why not? But also, like, one of his, like, character things is that, you know, they have, like, a better system of, you know, work-life balance. And so, like, he's constantly, like, taking, like, six-hour lunch breaks. At one point, he, like, his, like, family appears with him, and he goes to take a six-month vacation. Like, I just like that that's one of his, like, things compared to sam the eagle cia agent which is oh no i have you know i have have ample time off and can have a good work-life balance (laughs) okay so here's my biggest quibble with muppets must wanted and it is that there is a a latent conservatism to it 
Like you and I can look at Ty Burrell's uh, six hour lunch break and think like, hell yeah, dude, uh, me, where's my six hour lunch break? But the way that's being framed in the movie and specifically through the lens of Sam the Eagle is like, look at these lazy Europeans. Oh, um, oh yeah. And, and like Sam the Eagle in the Henson Muppets was always an object of mockery. Like he is a he is the embodiment of all of America's like most arrogant qualities. And and they kind of play with that with the whole like uh, the dick measuring contest of like whose badge is bigger. <laughs> like that's real funny. I do like uh, I do like that as well. But like for Sam the Eagle to like never be the butt of a joke outside of that um, seems to me to to speak to like the the political proclivities of the Disney Corporation. Um, where we when we're talking about other countries, we always have to make it seem as though America is superior. Uh, to like their you know socialism or whatever i mean that dude get a six like you know a six hour lunch i don't know who's the he's he's 100 <laughs> percent the winner there um but no i think i think they utilize the you know i think they utilize the cameos a lot better and then i just think that there's much more fun and like silly performances out of the main character sans ricky gervais who i, I just don't feel like ever I didn't feel like the matching, the pairing of like what that character is and what he does really makes sense. It's it's less like Ricky Gervais's fault and more he's miscast. I will say that like you know I think that that Ricky Gervais is a pompous dickwad in real life, right? Um, but I but he's not even really like that bad in this, you know. He's and then they, they kind of like do this whole thing where he's like you know he feels slighted as the number two. And I thought that was going to become something, and it really didn't. It just it shows up with him in a lemur costume, which yeah, is well, kind of like weird. It's, it's kind of him being uh, uh, embarrassed the entire time, which I I appreciate watching that happen. I like the humiliation of Ricky Gervais. That's good. Yeah. I like a, a the, Russian the whole... Kermit putting him into his place. <laughs> <laughs> which, like, I, I we just talked like about the hilarity of the, uh, the voice but also Constantine is just an incredible character. Like I'm so glad he was included in the cast of this movie. What a great Muppet creation Constantine is. I love I love that the plot point with him is that the other Muppets can't tell that he's not Kermit <laughs> because he has like a mole, but then they like cover it up. Like I yeah. liked it because it was like a it, it was literally like the, the like an Austin Powers level joke. Well, it's like just the joke stupid... in Caper about uh, Fozzie and Kermit being identical twins, and they kind of do a similar thing in the Muppets 2011 in the opening sequence where uh, Walter and Jason Siegel's character uh, say, like, we look so similar, we could be twins. But, like, they, the joke is not constructed in a way that actually gets a laugh in the, the way that it is in the other two movies we're talking about. No, I just love in Muppets Most Wanted where Kermit, you know, finally is just like, I'm a little upset, kind of, that y'all that couldn't tell that we were t- like there's, and literally like Fozzie's sitting there like with the paper and is going, oh Kermit, oh who's so that? funny man? <laughs> He's just like Kermit. Oh, that's not Kermit. Kermit, oh, you know. I also like um, it's you know Kermit historically has been such an expressive character despite the fact that his 
the actual uh, uh, like design of his of his puppet is very simple, but the, the Henson and the other people who have played Kermit have done a great job of like creating these like really subtle nuances of like the way that his mouth is curved around to like show different expressions, and they get a whole new palette of those with with uh, Constantine, like the way that his mouth is like all crinkled up on the the like wanted ad on that newspaper is really funny to me <laughs> i really like my favorite my first favorite constantine moment is when he switched places and he's supposed to do the the like intro and like get stage fright and just dies oh, yeah. <laughs> just it's like it's just like hanging there like a dead puppet yeah. like as they like start the show like it's like it's not even like he like flies off it's just he's like he's just like huh. yeah and he's like, I got the <laughs> just like lays there. <laughs> it was not stage fright. <laughs> um, no, it's this one. I think is just like much more. Like even though they want to say like the the Muppets, um, 2011 was much like more playful. I'm like, no, this is way more playful and way more silly. Like this is just like you have the like just the whole Siberian gulag is entertaining because you have Tina Fey there, but then like as the prisoners you have Ray Liotta, uh, uh, Jermaine Clement, and um, Danny Trejo. Yeah, Danny Trejo as himself. They were just referred to yeah, him just as Danny himself. Trejo. Stuck in She's a like, good night, Danny Trejo. <laughs> Like, 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 just you know, just the whole like when they're doing the talent show and they have the different music numbers among the inmates, um, you know, not as good as uh, Hugh Grant and Paddington too with his uh, musical there, among though. the inmates, but it's pretty yeah. fun. I also love that the the Welcome to the Big House musical number. Like, I think they get they get a lot of fun visuals out of these musical sequences in a way that I don't think they really do with. Uh, Muppets 2011. Um. Yeah, it's it, this. It, this one's a much more like visual, you know, visual movie. You know, even you have the song at the very end where they're like all stuck on the frozen wall and like kind of playing off of that. Like it's a, like they get a lot more. They're they're much again. It's a, it's a much more like they're able to do a little bit more. They seem you know watching this after watching 2011 is like. Oh, like they they seem less restricted for in, sure uh, mm-hmm. in this Muppets Unchained. Just do you know they can do whatever the hell they want. I wish they would. I wish Disney would just give some Muppet people money to keep making Muppet movies like this. But I, I guess we're done with that. Yeah, they brought back the the dude who did the guy who did Haunted Mansion. Yeah, it did, sucks. Um, well, he was the one who did Wizard of Oz. It was fucking terrible. Oh, so. really? <laughs> that that makes a yeah, lot of director. sense. Yeah, it's just kind of you're like, yeah. Also, like, who's like, what, 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 you know, in pop cult in the pop culture zeitgeist, who's talking about Haunted Mansion? No, <laughs> that's not a Christmas Carol level text. <laughs> By the way, if people want to hear us talk extensively about Muppets Haunted Mansion, uh, Jesse and I reviewed it. On I think the episode of the show we also talked about Shrek three, which itself is a trip. So go check that out if you want. <laughs> Honestly, just an all around great episode to listen to. Um, 
any any final any final thoughts that you want to share about the you know Muppet series at large as somebody who's participated and listened? I don't know. Have you have you felt like you've gained new appreciation or understanding? I guess I'm more <laughs> curious to to hear you answer that question, Zach, because you had not seen any of these features except for Caper, I think, right? So watching them all through chronologically and kind of getting a sense of the broader opus that is the Muppets. Um, like how, what are your, um, I don't know. What's your general sense of them now? Um, I enjoy them. Um, it was a lot of Muppets to watch in a month. I'll be honest. Um, they're fun. You know, I don't think I'm like a, I'm like a, I'm going to go and like just inundate myself with the Muppets. That's why I'm like, I'll watch Christmas Carol around Christmas. Right. Um, Give it some time. But uh, but no, they're fine. They're entertaining. You know, I struggle a little bit with uh, coming up with stuff to talk about with the Muppets. But you know, yeah, I mean, because the the end goal most of the time is just like fun and humor. So it there's not always like a lot of deep analysis to get into. It's just like, did you find this part funny or did you not? And like what it comes down to with these two movies to me is like Muppets one is real funny. That is a really funny movie. Um, I'm glad, I'm glad they made another funny one. (laughs) Yeah. Before they just started hawking random Disney rides for Disney plus. Um, yeah. All right, well, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter and Instagram at handles at cinematary, and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary, where we list all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Um, if you'd like to support the show, if you're like, we want more Muppets, well, we'll do a Patreon series, and you can give us you know a dollar and say we want more Muppets. Um, but you can do that at patreon.com slash cinematary. Thank, thank you so much to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marsathi, uh, Titus Arthur, and Tyler Chandler. Thank you so much for your patronage. Um, next week, we don't know what our series is going to be. We're literally going to decide that in like an hour or so after we stop recording this episode. <laughs> Inside baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll tweet it out and put it on the website. So uh, look for it there. But until next week.